0: beginning to read at verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, For what reason have you sent for me? Sir Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and it is our desire that we would profit, but we would also respond with hearts of thanks, hearts uh, that are devoted to you, that uh, we would respond with worship. I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to do so. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable uh, the weakness and whatever frailty in my preparation uh, to uh, be uh, not a hindrance, but that your word would shine clearly and your glory would be lifted up in the preaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The speaker at a large convention started his speech by saying, each of us has a job to do in this hour. My job is to talk. Yours is to listen. And my hope is that you won't finish your job before I finish mine. (laughs) My job today is to talk about the art of listening to a sermon. And before I became a minister, I had 32 years to practice and perfect the art of listening to uh, sermons, and it involved not only note-taking and adjustments to my attitude, but also techniques that would keep my mind from wandering, and biblical strategies to help me to focus upon God and not just uh, upon the uh, preacher responding to the sermon with worship, not just having my head uh, you know, soaking up knowledge like an egg, egghead. And I had to listen to all kinds of sermons, lots of boring ones, and there were interesting ones, long ones and short ones. Uh, there were ones that were good theology and ones that were bad theology as well. But my parents brought me up to treat... Uh, 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 listening to a sermon as an act of worship that required my effort and attention and reverence and godly response. Now, certainly a pastor has responsibilities in preparation, but we as listeners, they kept pointing out, have responsibilities to be prepared as well. I remember a friend of mine in uh, college, in fact, he was the guy that introduced me to five points of Calvinism. He would come away from some of the Arminian sermons just fuming, He would be so frustrated, he got absolutely nothing from the sermon. And I exhorted him, you know, two or three times and told him, look, it's you and you alone who have allowed that uh, preacher to rob you of your worship. I mean, I disagree with this preacher too, but my focus is not the preacher, but God. And you know, his sermon had plenty of stuff with which you could praise and worship God. And even on the bad theology, you could have turned it into a prayer for the pastor. Or you could have uh, turned it into a a prayer of thanks that God has opened your eyes, but it's only been recently He's opened your eyes to these things. And uh, also a prayer for humility. Well, he wouldn't buy in that. (laughs) He wouldn't buy in that. But I didn't allow him to spoil my worship. I do have to admit there have been times where Satan has spoiled my time of worship and my responses uh, to sermons. And I think if we're honest all of us have struggled with at least some sermons. Am I right? Am I right? (laughs) I think all of us have had some struggles with the sermons that we've listened to. And frequently what has happened is that we have become focused on something that the pastor has said that has irritated us. Maybe it's an illustration. Or maybe we have um, uh, had our minds wandering with the anxieties that uh, uh, some things that we have to do in this coming week but something has allowed us to turn off the switch of worship to God. Now, I'm not going to say everything that you maybe would want to hear to help solve your problem with listening today. In fact, uh, we're not going to be covering everything that the Bible has to say about listening because I really want to stick to the text. But among other things, which we're not going to deal with because I think this is the focus that God wants me to look at on this passage, among other things... This passage, I think, does teach us uh, a number of insights on how to listen to a sermon. The first point is that we should worship with the whole family. That may seem really counterintuitive because uh, it's precisely uh, having our little children that we're trying to train that uh, has been one of the distractions, right, that's kept us from listening to sermons uh, in the past. I know when we were training our young ones to sit still and to pay attention when they were real little, man, a lot of times we would miss out things like, what did he say? What did we say? completely missed it because we were having to discipline uh, a child. So I'm not doubting that this is a struggle. In fact, it is precisely because adults have wanted to be better listeners that they've invented such things as children's church and uh, uh, had uh, things like um, nurseries and cry rooms and things like that. And So, I'm very sympathetic. I can appreciate uh, where they're coming from. I can understand their motivation. Verse 24, let's look at that first. It says, On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now, from the context of verses 22 and 33, we know that the whole family was there. Verse 33, he says, We are all present before God. Chapter 11, verse 14, the whole family gets saved, and the whole family heard the Word, and so the whole family was there. And it might be thought, okay, that's an unusual situation, but when you begin to start studying the Scriptures, you find a pattern emerging that the whole family was always present. There was never a time when children did not know that they were under the preaching of the Word. They were always there, most natural thing in the world to them. And it is precisely because they learned how to listen at an early age that they became much better listeners when they were adults. Over and over, the Scripture says things like this. And the congregation gathered before the Lord, the men, the women, and the little ones. And that was a pretty long service. That was Joshua 8, verse 35. Uh, Joel 2, 15-16 says, "...Blow the trumpet in Zion, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes." Deuteronomy 31:12 says, "...Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law." And I want you to especially notice... The part of that verse that says that they may learn to fear the Lord your God. I mean, learning reverence and worship is not something that's going to happen overnight. And it's certainly not something that comes naturally. It is something that is learned by doing. And so don't be discouraged if at first you don't succeed, right? What happens when children churches establish is that their worship service is geared to attention deficit children and their attention deficit problem is reinforced. It's not taken away or removed. And so suddenly, when they join the adult worship at the age of 12 or 13, they have a real hard time concentrating. They have a hard time applying the passage, digging for meat, being interactive with what is preached, and their inward response. And the reason is they've never been trained to do it. Now, I've had people tell me, Phil, you just don't understand my kids. It would be impossible for me to worship together as a family. Well, I can sympathize, but I do not agree. And I'll just give you one tip that will maybe help you to breathe with a sigh of relief after a month or two. And I've had many parents who have practiced this and they said, Man, I wish we'd thought of this before. It works like a charm. Now keep in mind, any new habit has to be practiced every day for it to become comfortable. Uh, You can look at any habit, whether it's in sports or whatever. Usually it takes between four and six weeks of daily effort in order to do that. And so here's the thing you should do. Every day, have family worship in your home. Now, you should be doing that anyway. But have family worship in your home. And tell your children, this is family worship, and you need to sit still. You need to be reverent because we are worshiping God at this point. And at first, you may have to hold a little child while he struggles and train them. No, we're sitting still. Make them learn to sit still and discipline them when they uh, act up uh, during the worship and they wiggle. And it's a whole lot easier to bring that discipline to bear in the family worship than it is in the church worship. So this is the context in which practice goes on. Um, the key is being consistent. Don't discipline your child one time and then ignore it the other time because you're tired and you want to get more out of your family worship. Enable that child to realize they can predict consistency every time they wander, they act up, they talk, they do this or that. There's going to be discipline that comes to bear. And if your discipline is done consistently in family worship, you're going to find less and less need to do it during the public worship. Now, not every child is going to learn at the same pace. Some will figure it out within two weeks. Pretty rare, but within two weeks, there are some children who figure it out. Some may take four weeks, six weeks. They may take longer. But if you persevere, you will find an incredible payoff in your ability to uh, listen to the sermon later on as well. And so reverence is learned. It can't be learned simply by avoiding the difficult circumstances where we're afraid that the child might embarrass us. And by the way, using games to distract your children and to keep them quiet uh, uh, really reinforces the exact opposite of what the Scripture calls for. I know it's an easy shortcut for desperate parents. We've been tempted to do that ourselves when our children were young, but it teaches them how not to pay attention. If they need an activity, I recommend when they're really young that you have them draw something about the sermon. It could be, you know, like in this particular passage, a row of kids sitting quietly listening to the pastor, or it could be a giant ear, you know, listening to a sermon or something like that. Maybe an ear might be uh, easier for them to draw, and it doesn't have to be something that you can interpret if if they know what it means, you know, that they can take it with them. But really, this is the opportunity in which to train those children to be listeners with an attention span. And so point number one is basically saying, you know, this is an art that can be learned very young. And there are thousands of children in family-integrated churches across America who have been successfully trained to do this without any gimmicks whatsoever. The second thing that I see in verse 24 is that they came with expectation. They came with an attitude of faith. Cornelius was waiting for them as were the others they were expecting to hear from the Lord. they were all ears. One of the most discouraging things for a pastor is when he's got a church full of people of course it's not this church right but a church full of people who've really not come to hear from the Lord or to worship they're just you can tell they're enduring they're sitting through it they're counting the tiles on the ceiling you know're they're, they're really not there. Uh, one person told me, Years ago, oh, he doesn't have any problem. He always looks forward to the service. You know, when it's a great sermon, he he rises up encouraged. And when it's a boring sermon, at least, he wakes up refreshed. (laughs) That is not the kind of expectation we're talking about here, okay? Expectation is an attitude of faith that God will indeed meet you in the service, Okay? It's uh, expectation is an attitude of faith that God will indeed meet you here. As James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You can bank on it. You probably heard the story about the man who visited a church and right in the middle of the service he had a heart attack and died. And they called the ushers to uh, carry this guy out. They had to carry five men out before they found the real one. Laughter we do need to make sure that we are not spiritually dead and lame and sick sacrifices. We need to get enough sleep the night before so that we're not tempted to sleep uh, through the service. And we need to come assuming God got something for us in that service, whether it's through the hymns or through the preaching or whatever. Come with expectation. The third principle of good listening is that we must not come to worship the preacher. Instead, we must come to worship God. Now, Cornelius, I think, probably had very good motives. He's trying to be respectful to Peter, but he ends up <laughs> engaging in idolatry, which is a he and a sin in verses 25 through 26. So as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him <coughs> and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Now, God does indeed call members to respect the officers because of their office. But sometimes there is a fine line between respect and worship. Respect is treating them as representatives of the Lord. That is a heavy responsibility. It's a heavy office. It is worthy of respect. Worship would be to treat them In place of the Lord or as the Lord. And there is a difference. God wants ambassadors to be respected, but if they are not representing the Lord, they are not worthy of respect, whether from God or from man. And so we need to remember, the only authority that I have is the authority of the Word of God. Now, you cannot treat me as a Protestant pope. The older Reformed writers uh, worded it this way. They said, the only voice that should be heard in the church is the voice of Christ Speaking through the scriptures. You can look at the Apostle Paul. When he was preaching, he praised the Bereans for checking out everything that he said according to the Scriptures. Now that is a great compliment. Any pastor, well, most pastors should, would be taken as a great compliment when people are searching the scriptures to see whether the things that he says are so. That is an awesome, a wonderful thing. Now there is a balance here. Show respect, don't worship the pastor hold the pastor to a high standard, but at the same time recognize we're men with needs just like you are. I mean, we get hurt just as easily as you get hurt, you know, through meanness or through whatever. We're no less prone to discouragement than you are. We're certainly not infallible. And if you're looking for the perfect sermon, you know, with all of the elocution and the, The oratory and everything perfect Sunday after Sunday, well, you're turning the whole institution of preaching into something it was never intended to be. Paul's preaching was not oratory. A fourth principle that has always helped me in the past has been to come early and to be prepared. In verse 27, we find that the people had gotten there even before the preacher did. It says, "...as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together." Now, this is another way of showing respect for God, getting to the service on time. We model what we think about worship to our children by our timeliness. A gentleman having an appointment with a guy, and this guy was always late for meetings, and it was just ridiculous, but this time he was surprised because the guy was there early and was waiting for him. And so he walked up to the guy and he says, why, I see that you are here first at last. You were always behind before, but I'm glad to see you have become early of late. (laughs) That would be a great resolution for some of you to make, you know, to be here first at last, (laughs) or at least to be early of late. A fifth thing that blesses God and opens us up for blessing is if we avoid clicks, if we avoid exclusionary circles. 1 Corinthians 11 says, this was the precise issue that made the Corinthians uh, lose their blessings in the worship service and instead receive the Lord's judgments as they were failing to discern the body of Christ. And he, he explains that that the body is the people. When we're mean to one another, we're mean to the body of Christ. And so verse 28 says, And he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I've broken that down in your outlines into four different ways in which we can fail to discern the body of Christ and as a result not get what we should be getting out of the out of the sermon. The first is seen in the phrase keep company people who never come to church who prefer to be isolationistic are failing to discern the body of Christ. They're failing to properly honor the body or relate to the body. And so listening to a sermon on tape is not the same thing as coming to church. <clears throat> and so God's admonition is to keep company rather than isolation. The second phrase is that in that verse is another nation. And that stands in contrast to racism. God delights in a church that welcomes people from every race. In Revelation 5, it describes a great throng of people who would come to worship God and sing. And it speaks of them as being out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Third phrase is, I should not call any man common. And that stands in contrast to the snobbery of an elite. And by the way, it doesn't have to be rich people who are elitists, who are snobs. In this case, it's the poor fisherman, Peter, who's tempted to look down his nose at the rich Gentile as being common. It'd be sort of like, um, you know, a tradesman looking down his nose at white-collar people because they don't know which which side of the hammer to use. And yeah, white-collar people sometimes are idiots in certain areas, but that's why we need one another, right? Okay. So, whether it's racial snobbery, economic snobbery, any other kind of snobbery, God says, let's not engage in that. The last phrase in verse 28 is, not call any man unclean. There will always be people who come into the worship services who are less put together than you are at this particular stage in your journey. Uh, Maybe they've got social faux pas that they make, or maybe it's a sin as bad as what Cornelius has done. That's a pretty bad sin here. You know, worshiping Peter, that's idolatry. And yet we could just love them. Peter does not get all over his case, say, man, you you should be stoned to death for this because this is a he and a sin. He just corrects him and he moves on. And when we don't call people unclean and untouchable, we have God's delight resting upon us in the worship service. and we can expect the Lord to bless us with illumination, with sanctification through the truth. We're going to get far more out of the worship. The last admonition that we see in this passage is that we should have God-centered expectations. And I see 5 ways in which this worship service was God-centered. The first point was simply helping Cornelius to see. We always come to a worship service, we always listen to a sermon with reasons, whether they are expressed or whether they're not expressed. Now Peter wants Cornelius to be thinking about what his reasons are. He asks in verse 29, he says, Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? And I think that's a good question we can ask ourselves. Self-analysis can help us to discern, am I really listening to this in a God-centered way? Or is it mixed? Or maybe is it for totally humanistic reasons that I am uh, listening Cornelius's reasons are very good and they can be imitated. Look at verses 30 through 31. So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. The first thing that we see here is that Cornelius prepared himself for worship during the previous week. And let's just start the night before, if you look at verse 23, you'll see they got a good night's rest. You know, we will get far more out of a sermon if we come to a sermon having had a great night's sleep and we are refreshed. Now, I should go without saying I shouldn't even have to mention it. And yet it's ignored so many times. And I think it does need to be mentioned in Jewish households. And even in some Christian households today, they follow the old pattern. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m. the previous day right? It didn't begin at midnight or begin in the morning. It began at 6 p.m. The evening before, they'd already devoted to the Lord this day in Scripture reading and prayer. And I can guarantee you, if you started your Sabbath day at 6 p.m. the night before, you're going to be far more likely to get a good night's rest. Now, Jewish preparation began far before that. The full 24 hours before the Sabbath was called the Day of Preparation. They of preparation. And it wasn't just a day in which to catch up on chores. They probably had to do some of that. But they weren't working right up to the last minute. There were many other things that they did. They made sure that their pantries had the food that was needed for the Sabbath. They made sure that their clothes were all laid out and uh, that they would be ready for a dress. They, uh, they concentrated in their minds on getting ready, even mentally and spiritually, to benefit from the Sabbath, benefit from God speaking to them. But for the Jews... Anticipation began before the day of preparation. In God's providence here, Cornelius had been preparing four days before with prayer. We see him humbly seeking God's face before he goes to church. He says, you know, I want to know God. Uh, He's praying for God's grace. Uh, Karen Burton Maines wrote uh, really an excellent book called Making Sunday Special. I highly recommend it. But just one little point in that book that she mentioned that I had not even thought of before and did a little, little bit of research on that was she said for the Jew, the whole week revolved around the Sabbath. The three days after the Sabbath were reflective, the three days going into the next Sabbath were anticipatory. Okay? They were preparatory. And the reason for that is they saw the Sabbath as being the heart of the covenant, it's smack dab in the middle of the of the Ten Commandments, and it's called the sign of the covenant, and all of the other commandments revolve around that sign, and they said, this makes the Sabbath the thing around which our weeks revolve, and I found that remarkable, but in any case, whether you buy into that or not, uh, if you've been praying for the pastor during the week before, you're much more likely to be getting out of it much more. Pray for his preparation. You know, if he's boring, pray that he'd be interesting. You know? Well, maybe that's not the goal, but one person said that Sunday morning the congregation gets what it prayed for the week before. So there's preparation. The third way to be God-centered is given in verses 32 through 33. The angel said to Cornelius, Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. Now listen to the response of Cornelius. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. He's eager to hear. There's an immediate response to the angel. There's an enthusiastic anticipation of the preacher coming. When I was a teenager, I looked forward to Sunday morning worship and Sunday evening worship and Wednesday evening worship. I couldn't get enough of God's Word. And I think because I came with an eagerness to hear from God and to learn and to grow uh, that uh, the Lord opened up the Scriptures to benefit me so much more. The fourth way in which he shows a God-centered approach is that he asks Peter to let him have it. Let him have it, okay? doesn't matter what God wants to say to me. I want to hear it. And you can see that in the second sentence of verse 33. He says, now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Wow. <laughs> There's a great attitude that I think we would do well uh, to, uh, to imitate. We want to hear all of the things that God's commanded you to preach to us. We want the word, the whole word, nothing but the word. Bring it on, Lord. Preach it to us. Give it to us. And if you're listening with that kind of an attitude, I guarantee you, you're going to get a whole lot more out of the sermon because God's going to bless you with added illumination. Let me give you a proof text for that. There's many scriptures along these lines if you want more. But John 7, verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone wants to do his will, there is the operative phrase. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He's saying your attitude when you come to the sermon is is going to make a difference as to whether God gives additional illumination and blesses that Scripture to your hearts or whether He does not do so. Now, let's break that phrase that we read there down a little bit. He says, first of all, to hear. We've got to have a hearing ear. And so it's to hear versus to daydream. A senator from Ohio used to start all of his speeches with the question, Ladies and gentlemen, why are we here? And he spoke at a psychiatric hospital one day. And as soon as he asked that question, ladies and gentlemen, why are we here? An inmate immediately responded. He said, well, because, mister, we're not all there. (laughs) (laughs) We need to make sure we are all there, okay, that we are really paying attention, learning how to concentrate. Let me give you some techniques that I have used to keep me from zoning out in a service. And believe me, I've had some services where, man, you were tempted to zone out. Really, zone out. First of all, I ask the Spirit for His illumination before the sermon begins. And if the pastor has prayed for it, I agree with the pastor. If he hasn't prayed for it, I say, Lord, help me not only to understand the sermon, but help me to love Your Word, to respond appropriately uh, to Your Word. Second, I take notes of the sermon, and I do this because I've got a lazy mind. You may not realize that, but I've got a lazy mind that needs to be pushed. And I take notes as a means of moving my mind forward through the sermon. Now, I prefer to take notes without pre-filled out uh, note things. Other people prefer to have the notes in hand. It really doesn't matter either way. But uh, taking notes helps to focus the mind upon the sermon, even if you choose to throw the notes away later on. That's fine. But it's a technique to help you get the most out of a sermon. Third, I talk to God as God talks to me. Through the sermon. So I will say things like, Thank you, Lord. Or, I didn't know that. I'm going to write that down, Lord. Or, Yes, Lord, I repent and I thank you that your grace can change me. Or, Lord, you are so awesome. Uh, I, I, I respond. Now, don't be doing that out loud, or you're going to be the distraction that's keeping other people from paying attention. You know, the occasional amen or yes or praise the Lord, you know, is is maybe not that distracting. But I'm responding much more when I'm listening to other people preach. And so I have to do it silently uh, within my head. But if you are interacting with the word, your mind and your spirit are engaging with God. Okay, you're being an active learner, not just a passive learner. Fourth, I flip to the references that the preacher is preaching on. Well, unless he doesn't give you time, sometimes they really go through fast because I want to read along with them. I want to be a Berean, but more importantly, I want the word to be reinforced, to go in not just through the ear gate, but also through the eye gate. And so I read. Fifth, I write down action items as to what I need to do differently about my life. If the Lord brings anything to my mind, I write it down and I put it onto my continuing list of action items that uh, will help me uh, to grow. Sixth. I pray for the preacher when he seems to be slow or stuttering or losing his place. I pray for him. If his preaching is particularly bad theology, and I've had to endure some pretty bad theology sermons, I pray, Lord, open the eyes of this understanding. Bless this preacher. I try not to get critical. Seventh, I try to look the pastor in the eye when I am not actually taking notes. Because, again, that helps me to concentrate. Eighth, I ignore the preacher's bad habits or anything else that could be a distraction. I don't count up the number of times he says, um. Uh, (laughs) I don't count all the ceiling tiles, you know, and the number of fruit flies that are flying around. Uh, You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, Satan can use all kinds of distractions. It could be the hairdo of the person that's in front of you or the perfume that's driving you crazy three people down, you know. Or somebody's got lint on their shoulder and they're three aisles up and you're just dying to go up and pick that lint off. (laughs) Out in Ethiopia, it would probably be a chicken wandering through the, the worship service or a dog yelping. In fact, there was one time my dad was preaching on this precise subject, all of the things that Satan uses as distractions to pull, snatch the word away from your hearts. Remember the parable of the seed that was sown and some birds snatch it up? He says that's what Satan does. He tries to grab that word so it won't even register in your head. And the whole time my dad's preaching on this, he said, boy, it's really weird. Everybody was looking above his head. And he finds out later on there was this huge snake dangling from the rafters, just kind of writhing around his head. That was one time they should have paid attention to the distraction, whacked it, you know. But uh, <laughs> try to ignore the distractions. And so, those are eight tips that I use to try to develop hearing ears. Let me just repeat those for you in case you didn't get them in your notes. I pray. Second, I take notes. Third, I interact. Okay, I interact with what God is saying to me. Fourth, I read along in the Bible. That's using both the ear gate and the eye gate. Read along. Fifth, I write down action items. Sixth, I pray for the preacher during the sermon. And then seventh, I look the pastor in the eye when I'm not writing notes. Eighth, I ignore extraneous distractions. So, we, we must hear, we must hear intelligently. Well, verse 33 goes on to say to hear all the things. We don't want to have selective hearing where we're hearing the things that sound great, you know, but we're weeding out the things we don't like. Uh, We want to have uh, an attention span that says, Lord, I want to hear everything that you have to say to me. There are some theologian types. The only things that they're listening for are new information. Let me tell you something. You can worship God even if there is not one bit of new information in that sermon. It's not the purpose of the sermon to give you all necessarily new information. We need to listen to all of the things and turn all of the things that we're hearing into praise, adoration, and and reinforcement, reminder. How many times did Peter say in 1 Peter, I will not forget to remind you. I will continue to remind you. He keeps mentioning that. I will remind you. And so we need reminders too, listening to all of the things. Verse 33 goes on. It says to hear all the things commanded. Now, this is obviously an exhortation to the pastor that he needs to be not just preaching what the people want, but what God commands him. But I think this is also an admonition to the congregation to be listening to God's voice. Your goal is to be so focused upon God's word. Your heart is on fire because God himself is speaking to you. And so the whole phrase says to hear all the things commanded you by God. Sermons are not to be consumer driven Uh, engines, they are to be God-driven, and it is not just pastors who are guilty of catering to the consumer-oriented mentality that we have in America. Congregations are the ones who create that demand, okay? They say, we want to hear something that is interesting or something that will make me feel good or that will be comforting or my favorite subject, but our goal when we come to worship is not, great, I'm happy because he's preaching on my favorite subject, nor should it be Whoa, I hope my wife's listening to that one. Or I hope that my kids are listening or my husband's listening. Now, just trust God's providence to deal with other people. This is what God is giving to you personally. But let's end now with uh, the middle phrase of verse 33 where he says, We are all present before God. When you listen to a sermon, you are not simply listening to Phil Kaiser. This isn't a mysterious thing. You are listening to God speaking to you through the sermon. According to Scripture, God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to be His mouthpiece today. There are many Scriptures along these lines. Let me give you one. When Jesus sent out the 70 preachers, these are not the 12, He sends out the 70 preachers and Luke 10, He told them, He who hears you hears me. Luke 10, verse 16. Now, of course, that's assuming they're preaching the word of God, right? That's why they're hearing Christ is because they're faithfully preaching the word of God. But in Pierre Marcel's masterful book on preaching, he said this. Jesus makes it a point to affirm that when they proclaim the good news, it is as if he himself, the Christ, proclaimed it in person. It is and remains the Word of God. It retains its same power and effectiveness. And he goes on to give many, many scriptures that show that the preaching of the Word regenerates the hearts. It gives faith. It sanctifies saints. It confers hope. It is the power of God. Okay? Paul is amazed, he's absolutely amazed that God would bank so much on the foolishness of preaching and yet he chooses to do so. And it's not because the pastor is anything special. No, it's because God stands behind his ambassador and he quickens the word of God to their hearts. Now this consciousness of God's presence with us in his royal covenant ceremony, that's what this is. It's his royal covenant ceremony. It ought to affect our inward emotions. It ought to affect our outward demeanor. And even our dress is a reflection either of what we are expecting from the worship or maybe what we've experienced in the past out of worship. I think it is especially a reflection of what we think worship is all about. Is it truly God we are meeting with? Is it God who is speaking to us through the foolishness of of the preacher, Paul said, "My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." First Corinthians two, verse four. In the previous chapter, Paul had said, "Yes, the world thinks it's the foolishness of preaching, but he said it is the power of God. It is the power of God to you." So, having looked at this passage, what can we conclude? Well, I think we can conclude that failing to listen to sermons properly is a sin, and since Christ came to save us from our sins, we can have hope. Now, if it wasn't a sin, maybe it would be no hope for my wandering mind, right? But if it is a sin, then there is hope, and there's not only hope for our change, but we're no longer condemned by the fact we've got wandering minds, right? We can come boldly before the Lord uh, when we get our mind back again and not worry about Those judgments. We can also conclude that listening to God's word is a virtue that Jesus perfected while he was here on earth. And I think if you realize, by the time he was 12, he had learned the scriptures so well in the synagogues and in other venues, he was able to dialogue intelligently with these with these doctors that were uh, there, these teachers. So he had obviously been a good uh, listener. And the same Jesus can live his life through you. He can enable you to be a good listener as well. So it's not just the passive obedience that covers your failure to be a listener, praise God, but it's his active obedience which is given to you as a gift in which he lives through you. I think we can conclude God is for you in this process. He's not against you. He understands what you're going through, and he's for you. He will give you the grace that you need. I think we can conclude that the art of listening to a sermon doesn't happen automatically. It has to be learned, and it can be prepared for. I think we can conclude that the ability to listen is in large part governed by our theology, our worldview, and our attitudes. It is transformed when God opens our understanding to realize when we come to worship, we are meeting in His presence. We are meeting in the presence of the holy angels. When I was doing research for this article, I didn't find a lot of help, but there was a one-page article by the... Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals that I thought was really good. It was titled, How to Listen to a Sermon. And I'm going to close by quoting their concluding statement. At the end of the page, they said, So what is the right way to listen to a sermon? With a soul that is prepared, a mind that is alert, a Bible that is open, a heart that is receptive, and a life that is ready to spring into action. And I say, Amen. May God give us such reception to his sermons that come before you week after week. In fact, may he give you incredible joy as you learn to focus in upon him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the examples that you give in your word of those who have been prepared by your spirit to listen. And uh, we confess that there have been times where we have Uh, fail to listen as we ought. Our minds have wandered. We've not been focused upon You. We have have such a difficult time offering up our worship to You. We're sleepy. We uh, find the distractions more interesting than we do the, the other things that are around us. And we pray, Father, that You would not only forgive us, but that You would empower us and give us great joy as we grow in this ability. From the time that our children are young to the present, I pray, Father, that You would... Enable them to develop more and more this art of listening and that they would grow incredibly as they are sanctified by that truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word as we sing this hymn of response.